Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Jane Harris, who came into the Faber offices recently to talk to me about her new novel, Gillespie and I. Jane was born in Northern Ireland, but moved to Glasgow aged four, and it is in her adoptive, and incidentally my native, city that this book is set. The year is 1888, and Glasgow is hosting the International Exhibition, showcasing all manner of wonders of the modern age. It is partly that exhibition which entices young, art-loving Harriet Baxter north from London. In Glasgow, she befriends a Gillespie family, in particular Ned Gillespie, father of a young family and a struggling artist on the verge of making a name for himself. As the months go by, Harriet becomes woven into the fabric of the family's life, but events are to take an increasingly sinister turn and lead to a shocking act and a criminal trial that rivets the attention of the whole country. The events of Gillespie and I are recounted by Harriet several decades later, from the vantage point of old age. I asked Jane if it had been a particular challenge coming up with a voice for Harriet, given that Bessie, the narrator of her first novel, The Observations, had possessed such a strong, distinctive character. Well, I knew it would have to be a very different voice, because obviously they're extremely different characters. One's English, one's of Irish... One's very highly educated, one isn't really educated at all. So they were, they were going to have to be very different. And I looked upon it as a challenge, I suppose, yes. I mean, in some ways, I think of Harriet as being a smarter character than I am myself. So in a way, that was a great challenge. And I did a lot of reading of uh, books from the period, quite a lot of Henry James, that kind of thing, to get into, you know, forming longer sentences, having quite good punctuation compared to Bessie, you know, and just being a little, making it all a bit more flowing. And uh, also with Harriet, she's quite pedantic in her punctuation and in the things that she picks up on. So that was also a very different thing for uh, for the narrative voice. Do you remember what aspects of her character sort of first came to you? How did, how did she begin to take shape in your imagination? A lot of my characters are sort of, based on elements of people that I know. There's never any, it's never like one person is a character, but I've sort of drawn elements from from different people. And I also relied quite a lot on looking at paintings of the period. And um, there's one in particular of a woman standing in a studio. She's looking at some sheet music and she's got this half veil on. And I thought that's a great image for how I see Harriet's maybe standing in Ned's studio. So I had this sort of visual image of her and I pulled different elements from, from people that I know and then tried to add in, because I think she is pedantic, but I, I do like to use humour, so I thought she has to have some sort of, a little bit of wit and humour going on as well. So I tried to draw some of that in as well. And, um, you know, she's quite, in the way that Bessie can, can be quite scathing about other people, Harriet can be too, but she's very... She's very clever in that she often couches it in a way that doesn't seem like an insult. And I love people who do that. I love people who play those sort of horrible status games. I don't know why I'm saying I love them, I hate them. But, um, you know, people who can crush you with just one sentence. And I wanted Harriet to be, while still trying to make her likeable, I wanted her to be able to be the kind of person who could do that. Yes, she is a narrator, one could say, who forces you to reread, who forces you to go back and reconsider, I think. Well, that's my, that's my hope, yes. Yeah, there are, there are elements of the story which are mysterious and uh, there's, a, there's, there's red herrings in there and, uh, and I've, 
hopefully planted different clues about certain things. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, people will, when they reach the end, think about uh, going back, if not rereading the whole thing, then... Yes. Well, that's, that's certainly what I did. Uh, well, not reading the whole thing, but I went back and wanted to re-examine certain scenes and sort of, because by the time you get to the end, you do, you do want to go back and reconsider, actually, mm. what, what you've been told without, mm. without giving too much away. Mm. You set your first novel in the sort of indeterminate country between Glasgow and Edinburgh, but for both this one, you're resolutely in, in Glasgow. Mm. Tell me about, about sort of doing the research in order to create that Glasgow of the, the 1880s and the, the international exhibition, which is, is, is part of the um, focus of the, the early part of the book. Well, I did a lot of uh, paper-based research. I always spend a lot of time looking at maps. So I got lots of old maps, uh, Ordnance Survey maps of Glasgow and maps of the exhibition site. Um, and I probably spend longer than absolutely necessary staring at those in a sort of dwam, as we say. I don't, I don't, it's a state of daydream yes. for, for English listeners. <laughs> yes, and I don't quite know how that helps me, but it seems to sort of get me into the the mode of the place somehow. Also for this, I spent a lot of time looking at paintings of the Glasgow boys. So, And again, I did most of that by looking at a great book by Roger Billcliffe, which uh, is all about the Glasgow boys, and then another book about the Glasgow girls, which I found quite useful. So quite a lot of paper-based research, reading the catalogue of the exhibition and the adverts. But then I also did uh, go back to Glasgow and I used to live in the West End, pretty much um, the street where Ned and Annie live. I lived just around the corner from that. Uh, it was my first flat ever when I was a student. So I could probably have seen their flat from where my flat used to be. And I used to go to par- student, really mad student parties in the street where they live, uh, which has now got a different name. It's a very rundown area. At the time I lived there, it was a red light district, so it was all very grotty and exciting. And at the time that you're writing about, it would all have been quite new, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be sort of respectable um, families would be would be moving there from, and they would be quite quite recently built. Absolutely, that's right, because the city was beginning to expand westwards and. Um, Actually, the, where, where the Gillespies live is, is just on the border of one of the, the most, and probably still the most uh, sort of exclusive parts of Glasgow, near the, right next to the park. Their actual street is, um, is slightly down market, but still very respectable residence. So I went back, in fact, I even, uh, having done a bit of research through 192.com, managed to get in touch with people who actually lived in that street and pestered them with letters and got invited into the house, which, um, into the flat, which uh, is the Gillespie's flat. So it was great to be able to actually get in there. And they're quite unique flats because they have a, they don't, they're not just one story at the top. They have an attic, which is very unusual for Glasgow. So they have an attic floor. So I was able, a very kind couple, let me poke all around their house. So that was really helpful. And I t- took loads of photographs. Same with uh, Queen's Crescent, took loads of photographs there. And then I also read lots of true crime cases from about the time uh, of, of uh, Gillespie and I. There's a couple of very famous cases of that time, one in fact, which, uh, well, it's actually a bit later, but it actually takes place in West Princess Street, which is very near the um, the scene of some dramatic events uh, in Gillespie and I. And that was very helpful as well, the language of the, the way that the um, stuff about the court cases were written. And uh, so, yeah, it was a, there was a lot of research. And I, I usually start out with one folder for planning story and character and one folder for research. And by the end, 
uh, I had, I think, four of each, like those box file folders, just filled with my inane ramblings of, you know, what might happen in the story, and then research, which, uh, you know, some of it didn't even obviously end up in the book, but you sort of have to do it, so... And you said that you think of Harriet as being smarter than you, which is obviously not true, but there's an interesting remark. So were the things that you discovered about Harriet as you, as you wrote, were the things that she, as it were, mm. revealed as the, as the novel unfolded? Or did you know, by the time you amassed your eight box files, did you know exactly where she was going to take you? I think one thing I discovered was that I, I was a lot fonder of her than I thought I might be. Um, I spent quite a lot of time, there's a strand in the story which concerns her past and her father and I think in in writing those scenes and in uh, sort of working on the story there I managed to find, you know, a huge amount of empathy for her and, you know, I think it's quite important to love your characters and um, I I do have, have a lot of love for Harriet, I have to say. So yeah, I think I found more love for her than... Uh, I thought I might initially have. And did you sort of see it as a as an opportunity, as it were, the fact that, that Victorian Glasgow is not is not written about in fiction as much as as some other cities or some other times? Did it, did it feel relatively virgin territory to you? It did, I suppose. I mean, I did quite deliberately set the observations in a in a sort of no man's land or something to me that to me is a no man's land. It was neither a you know a Highland novel, a Glasgow novel, an Edinburgh novel. With this, as soon as I made the decision to set it in Glasgow, which was quite early on, like in my my very first uh, note about the Gillespie and I, was, is just like one line on a, a bit of paper that says, artist, Glasgow, 19th century. I think that's what it said. You know, that is familiar territory to me. And I know there's not that much, um, you know, historical stuff about Glasgow at that time. There's a lot more about England, about London. But I don't, I don't know that I really looked on it as an opportunity. I suppose I looked on it as a, as, as a challenge, really, because in a way, although I was born in Belfast, I did spend more of my childhood and growing up years in Glasgow, and um, it is my city. And I wanted to do it proud, do you know what I mean? And I just, I hope I've done that. I mean, I really enjoyed all the stuff. The, 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 there's a lot of love for Glasgow in the book. Yes, I think that, I think that comes across, mm. and even in the fogs or the... Or the sound of foghorns and the Clyde on, on Hogmanay, things oh, like that. Yes, God, yeah, because that's a real memory from my childhood. Because we lived uh, in a you know a, an estate not too far from the Clyde, we, although we didn't live in the city centre when I was growing up. And um, that was a very clear memory that you would open the windows at New Year, and then you'd hear this very mournful sound of the foghorns. And you, I always used to think, oh, those poor men on those boats with these mournful old foghorns. So yeah. There's a lot of affection in it for Glasgow. Tell me what takes Harriet Baxter to Glasgow in the first place. As you say, she's, in, she's English. Well, how, how does she come to be there in, in 1888? Well, her aunt, uh, who she lives with uh, in Clerkenwell, dies. And in the winter, Harriet has nursed her, but unfortunately she dies. And um, by the spring, I think she... Uh, she's been through her mourning and she feels that she needs a bit of a change of air. And so at the time, it would have been in the papers quite a lot about the preparations for the exhibition. And so I imagined that she would have seen that and thought, 
I would quite like to go there. And of course, you know, her relatives are Scottish. She does have roots in Scotland. Um, She's got a stepfather who lives near the city. That's right. Her stepfather lives near the city. And her mother's originally Scottish as well. So although she's not been there uh, as an adult. So I thought that's a nice reason to get her to go uh, up north. I can't quite remember what the decision was behind making Harriet an English woman. That's a mystery to me. I think it's partly to do with, you know, I was born in Ireland, brought up in Scotland. I've lived a long time in England. I think things are more fluid than people often think. You know, we're, we're never either, you know, we're never entirely one thing. And in a way to write an entirely Scottish book, uh, maybe I will do that uh, at some point, but Bessie was Irish in Scotland, Harriet is English in Scotland, and uh, I quite like mixing it up a bit. How big an event was the international exhibition? You mentioned that there would have been coverage in the press. I mean, how, how big a deal was it for, for Glasgow, which was then the, uh, the mm-hmm. second city of the empire? Oh, it was a huge deal, absolutely huge. Uh, people came from all over the world to that exhibition. And then there was a there was a bit of a competition going because I think I think Manchester had had a big exhibition the year before, and they'd had you know X thousand people go through the the gates, and there was a huge thing in Glasgow that we were going to have more visitors. So people bought these season tickets and they would just go in one gate and out the other, and in one gate and out the other, trying to make the same total as uh, or beat Manchester's record basically. So. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was huge. I mean, you can only enter into the world of 1888 so much in your imagination. I, there's part of me that would quite like to be still in that world, still you know, with all the characters. Uh, but it's it's gone now. It's in the book. <laughs> I, I loved um, Harriet's stepfather as a character. I thought he was, he was very amusing and I loved his dismissal of the exhibition as side shows in sweeties. So yeah. that, that, was very, <laughs> that sort of sums something up. Tell me then, how, the, the title is Gillespie and I, tell me how Harriet encounters the, the Gillespie family and becomes part of their world. Uh, she's not long arrived in Glasgow to see the exhibition and she's window shopping one day in town and happens to come across uh, an elderly woman who's collapsed in the street and there's a young woman with her and Harry intervenes and manages to save uh, this woman who's who's actually in dire straits and because of that is invited to tea uh, at their house or at their flat and um, really it goes from there and then she realises that she's actually met the um, the husband of the young woman before um, at an exhibition in London and he's a struggling painter yes uh, and, and not, you know, not a man of, of wealth, of a wealthy background or anything like that. He's, he was, you know, his father ran a, a, a haberdashery, really, on the Great Western Road. You know, under any normal circumstances, he would probably have been serving behind the counter. But he had this artistic talent and ended up going to, they used to run these um, really early morning classes in the art school. So he went to those, worked on his technique. And uh, I think by the time Harriet meets them, he's just been managing to make a living out of painting for about a year or so. So he's at the early stages. It must have been interesting to investigate the art world. You mentioned the Glasgow boys, and it, it seems to be a, quite a small world, you know, quite a lot of infighting, certain amount of parochialism. But t- t- tell, me what sort of, tell me what sort of milieu it was in Glasgow in the, at that time. The Glasgow boys, they didn't start to be called that until some time later, as far as I'm aware. 
and quite a lot of them were not although not all of them by any means but quite a lot of them were sort of sons of the manse um you know or of merchants or whatever so they had a little bit of money and were able to take the time and go and study in paris some of them went to paris to france to study at the art school and so there were lots of friendships uh, between various of them i think uh, henry and hornell is the most fam- famous uh, pairing and they went off to japan together on an ill-fated trip for one of them, I think Hornell, wasn't it? Who, who on the way back, he um, all his paintings that he'd done in Japan uh, in the hold of the ship on the way back, they all stuck together. Mm. And so every single painting was ruined. So, and I don't think he and Henry got on quite so well after that because, <laughs> because Henry- Because he didn't. Henry made a huge success mm. of his paintings and became very wealthy. Um, and poor Hornell couldn't, didn't have anything to show for the trip. So there were all sorts of rivalries and they were, you know, I've got stuff about cartoons being drawn of the various artists and they would do that. They would draw cartoons of each other and, uh, you know, they seem to be fairly well-known characters around, uh, around the city. And Harriet decides that she wants to help advance Ned's career. Yes. She's a very helpful person and um, she's not fabulously wealthy. But she's very lucky in that she has a, you know, a, an income and a little bit of money and is able to help uh, Ned and Annie out. And the, the first way that she does it, this is by, um, initially she wants to buy one of his paintings and then has the idea that ah, maybe he could paint one, uh, paint me a portrait. And in the end, it's, it's his wife, Annie, who's also an aspiring artist who actually takes on the commission to paint Harriet. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the ways that they, they all get to know each other a little bit better. Now, the Gillespie's have two children, two daughters, Sybil and Rose, and they're a, a key part of this, this story. Tell me about writing about children, because you have a, I would say, a distinctive way about, about writing about the children. These are, these are unusual children. Tell, tell me a little bit about these two girls. Well, that's Harriet writing about them. Uh, you must remember, it's uh, it's her point of view, um, and um, I suppose she has um, she has a particular way of seeing them. When she comes into the family, it's it's quite clear that there is a, uh, a well, it soon becomes clear that there is a problem with with the older child Sybil, who um, is quite badly behaved. And uh, after a little while, it becomes clear that she's perhaps, you know, more disturbed than, than anybody uh, might have guessed. I really quite enjoyed writing about the children because uh, they're such great little characters. There's moments like Sybil running round and round and um, her mum saying, oh, she's tired. <laughs> oh, she's tired. <laughs> and Harriet saying, oh, quite. So yeah, I quite, I quite had quite fun with that and, and uh, describing her little vampire-like teeth. Yes, that, that, yes that, that thing, things like that quite early on in the book just stuck with me. That's a, that's well, a, that's was, a good I example. I was quite conscious that I should, um, you know, that there, there is, as I've said, there's a mystery in the book and I felt it was important to, um, well, portray Sybil in particular as a child who's not quite, you know, all sweetness and light. Yeah. Even slightly demonic, I'd say, in, in Harriet's rendition. I mean, there's a, there's a mm. scene which, which um, recurs to me now where... I think it's Annie and Harriet. I think it's during a portrait session, and Sybil is on the sofa and she's That's holding right. up a little mirror yes. from time to time so that she can keep an eye on things. So there's <laughs> yes. something quite sinister about her. Yes, I don't know where that idea came from, but I liked the idea that she was 
being sick on the couch, you know, in a sort of swoon. But at the same time, she has this little mirror and a stick and she's poking out so that she can keep an eye on her mother and this, this woman who's invaded her home. Now, you've got, a, you've got twin narratives running because you've got the story in the 1880s and you've also got Harriet's present, which is 1933, when she's sitting down finally to, to put together her memoir. Tell me what, what her life is like by 1933. What, what, what's preoccupying her by then? Well, by 1933, she's quite old. She's uh, almost 80. And she's a little bit less, well, quite a lot less able than she was and lives in a, the fourth floor of a mansion block in Bloomsbury. And the lift is a bit temperamental and she doesn't like getting in it in case she gets stuck. So she's uh, often a little bit, um, not, not entirely trapped because she can get out and about a bit, but she's not as free as she would like to be. And she has a companion assistant, as she likes to call her, Sarah. And so Sarah is really, uh, Sarah and uh, two birds, uh, two green finches, are her main companions really now in 1933. So in a way, it's, um, it's quite, a, quite a lonely life, perhaps. She's not, uh, her, her money uh, is still there, but she doesn't have as much as um, she might have had, I don't think, because perhaps her accountant didn't think she would live as long as she, she has done. So it's quite a solitary life and, and she's spending all her time writing this memoir now and Sarah is helping her by going off to the museum to do little bits of research for her. And you get little glimpses of how she might be seen by others when she goes to a greengrocer's and the greengrocer's boy calls to the, the shopkeeper says, oh, the whiskey lady's here. So you get a, get a sense of mm. other, other perceptions of her. Well, that was one of the great challenges. Um, when you're doing a first-person narrative, um, you really only have that person's point of view on all the other characters. And, you know, in some ways, uh, we have Harriet's perspective on characters like Ned and Annie, but it's if you met Ned and Annie, you might think entirely differently about them than Harriet does. So it was an interesting challenge to try and get a perspective on Harriet without, you know, some authorial voice stepping in. So I, I have great fun with that, with slipping in little moments where in dialogue or in, in responses to things that uh, she says so that we get you know we build up a, a picture of her as well as what she's telling us mm. it's from you got it just right you know because it, there's obviously a danger you could it could be too much you could turn it up too high you could turn it down so low that the reader completely misses it but it seemed to mm. me that you'd you'd struck a nice balance there oh that's good one of the other challenges is is knowing when to re reveal what in a story and um you know, that was one of the most um, painstaking thing, things in writing this novel, I think, was, was working on that kind of thing. Because without giving too much away, something dreadful happens mm. in the middle of the book. Mm. And the whole of the rest of the book is, is then shaped by, by that, that terrible event. Yeah. And by the time we get to the end, as we said earlier, we want to go back to the beginning and just re-examine that, 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 that whole sequence of, of mm. encounters and events. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, a very... Um, big dramatic event and I mean it's not giving too much away to say that it, the book does end in a court case because I say that on um, I think page one practically so um, it's all leading up to quite an extended court court case and um, you know that was one of the things that I had to do very very careful research on because you know I'm not a lawyer and uh, so that the last part of the book although a lot of the a lot of the content of what happens in the in in that I had I always had in my head. You know, I I sort of knew where it was going to end up. The actual 
blow by blow, minute by minute, working out of how, you know, how does that actually happen? What would happen in a trial? What order would witnesses be called and all that kind of stuff? But I was very helped by a friend of mine who's a sheriff in Glasgow, a judge. And I, I honestly, I couldn't have written the book without her help because uh, I'd send her endless emails and she never lost patience. <laughs> Tell me about comedy because there, there's definitely a, a comic strain to this novel and at the same time you go into really quite, quite dark and terrifying places. I suppose my favourite kind of writing is writing that manages both to be dark but is also comic and I suppose I think that that's what life is like really and I like to be able to to try and render that in, in a story or, or in a novel and um, it's quite important to keep me, I mean not only narrative keeps you turning the pages so I work very hard on narrative but I think you know with uh, events as dark as happened in this book I think you and, and the same for the observations in fact I think you have to have a, a some something of a, a lightness of a touch otherwise it would just all become too depressing I mean I knew that in the observations I knew I wanted to have a quite a comic narrator because otherwise the stuff that happens would just crush everybody and the same in this um, I felt it was important to also for my own amusement you know what I mean you spend so long with these characters and I like nothing better than to be writing a comic scene I have to mm. say so that's why there's quite a few of them <laughs> there's quite, quite a few of them in the early part mm. of the book but they get less and less as it goes mm. on it struck me that even on even in the very first pages there is a scene where Ned the painter is seen trying to steal back one of his own canvases mm. And when you read that the first time, it does seem quite a comic scene, really. But then mm. in the light of what happens later, you go back and it actually seems terribly poignant and tragic. Yeah. So it can, the same events can be, can be viewed in, in different ways. That's right, because we don't know enough at the beginning in order to understand how tragic that actually is. And mm. also in the way that Harriet has described it and uh, the circumstances of it, which I, I won't say. But So yes, you, you do view that completely differently um, if you went back and reread it. Jane Harris. Gillespie and I is out now in hardback, and her first novel, The Observations, is available in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more author interviews on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.